Drew, you are the SVP of cloud transformation at uh, a cloud guru. And we're going to get into your very exciting career doing all kinds of stuff. But I want to start with uh, an important tweet that I found that um, back in March, you said that your neighbor has three young kids and they got a, a zip line, a moon bounce and a swing and some outside speakers where it sounds like their father is, is playing music. So during this uh, period of quarantine, at some point, did you go over there and just jump on the moon bounce? Did you uh, uh, partake in any of these, uh, these kid I, toys? <laughs> I may have, um, but Hey, what happens in Richmond stays in Richmond, uh, especially among neighbors here, you know, um, I, I am looking for them to adopt me. I and mean, they got a pretty, pretty sweet setup uh, for, for, for quarantine. I, I cannot, I mean, so they have three young kids. The guy is out there. Half the time he has his um, his his leaf blower. And, you know, my wife is like, why does he have his leaf blower? I'm like, he's got three young kids and he's in quarantine. He's probably out there drowning out that noise <laughs> as much as he can. So he's out there blowing the leaves every day. Um, but, yeah, so he's got the zip line, a, a bouncy. He's got the speaker set up. Um, you know, I'm assuming he's going to have a golf course over there for them at some point soon. But, uh, well, but yeah, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be hitting the moon bounce here as, as it warms up. I was gonna say, uh, as he, um, as any father knows during quarantine, at some point, I'm sure he's like starting to do the ROI. It's like, should I build a pool? I feel like I've never seen so many people embrace the idea they're going to build their own pools. And it looks like his children are just maybe just on the cusp of like, you know what? They're going to break this moon bounce. I think you posted our next picture. I'm like, they're going to outgrow this, and he's going to be like, you know. We're going full pull. That's that's all we got. Yeah, left. I, I will. Well, I will definitely be over there at that point for sure. You know, no, no doubt. So uh, I'll have to maybe kind of drop that suggestion, uh, you know, a little <laughs> uh, Jedi mind trick, and, and then I'll have a, a pull to jump the fence to get into. So I'll be just like in high school. Be all good. <laughs> yeah, it'd be fantastic. Well, hey, thanks for for coming on the show today. Um, I wanted to talk to you about a bunch of stuff because I know you're over at a Cloud Guru. But let's let's just start because I think people are always interested. Um, how did you first get into tech? What was your what was your first job and what did, what did you do there? Yeah, it was um, you know it wasn't as like serendipitous. Um, you know, I, I did kind of work my way from you know from a degree getting into uh, information systems, um, but I uh, actually. Uh, started off when I was in junior high. My dad got me a, a, a Timex Sinclair, like these old membrane computers that you can kind of hook on some, I was like, you know, 16K, you know, memory packs on the end. Um, and that was actually my science fair project for middle school. It was like a, a basic program of my name scrolling diagonally because I used the, you know, the, the, the semicolon at the end of the go-to statement or whatever for printing my name. Um, I just was fascinated by it and, and, and you know, uh, learned how, how to use it, um, graduated to like a TRS-80 and then um, just became familiar with using personal computers. And I really didn't think a whole lot of it. I mean, I was just a, you know, boy and playing sports and doing things in school and whatever. And um, but then when I got to, to school, I became a, a, a lab assistant um, at the computer labs, uh, helping out other students. Actually, I, I described that my wife, she was an English major and helped her, you know, figure out how to use the, the, the computer um, and uh, was a, a student uh, rep for Apple, as a matter of fact, in the bookstore, because um, I was just kind of fell in love with Macs. That was back in the day of HyperCard and whatnot. Um, and I was like, oh, you could make a you know career out of this. this, is, this is, uh, you know, it was, <laughs> to me, it was enjoyable. I was kind of fascinated by it um, and kind of the ecosystem about building things and, and um, you know, how do you use these systems to, to build things and so it was really fascinating to me. And, um, and that, yeah, that's kind of where I started, started off, um, you know, degree in information systems. And, um, I was really fortunate enough to my first job, um, out of school, I was way over my skis. 
um, got a job as a systems engineer uh, at a Hughes Aircraft Company, um, like the Howard Hughes, you know, that, that guy, mm-hmm. uh, the Spruce Goose, right? Um, but they uh, really focused on uh, satellite, satellite imagery, did a lot of work for unnamed agencies and the DOD, uh, some really, really fascinating work. Um, so yeah, that's where I kind of started off and really got a crash course there. The first five years was just you know, heads down into some pretty large scale uh, systems. Um, and that was such an interesting time in the you know, early 90s. Um, I mean, our, our lab got access to like the HTTP demon, you know, protocol and, and got to investigate that. And, and we did right. some so this is kind of the beginning cool of the internet, right? But it sort of just started to take off there. Is that kind of? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I mean, I worked with Al Gore and we invented the internet, you know, back back then. <laughs> but um, no, we, we actually, so we built some of the first, actually, uh, I built one of the first intranets in the country uh, with within um, our organization using that protocol. But really the focus there was really interesting. Um, so a lot of the problems that we were trying to solve at Hughes were, are, were really similar to the problems that people are trying to solve today, right? It's like there's these massive data sets. Uh, in this case, it was imagery data sets that were distributed throughout the country uh, from satellite imagery. How do you get those large data sets? How do you access them very quickly over high-speed networks? Um, and bring them back to these distributed end users so they can start making decisions in real time. In this case, it was things like bomb damage assessments, right? Things like that from satellite right. imagery that was being taken in real time. But, you know, that's it brings up a lot of different, uh, you know, problems um, about scale um, and, and how do you manage that, that scale with networking and um, storage systems, um, you know, all, all of that stuff together and, and, and putting it together in a way that, that um, ultimately delivers business outcomes, right? So, Super, super fascinating. Um, well, at least was for me, you know. Right. Um, and, and of course, you know, they weren't paying me as much as my my friends that went to do consulting, but they kept on telling me, um, yeah, but you're doing really cool work. <laughs> That's right. right. You're, you're um, saving the world. You're doing something noble, right. probably. It's a lot of that right, kind of talk, right? right? Uh huh. Yeah, and I was actually working behind a vault. It was, you know, weird stuff like that, you know. Like, well, what was the, what's a, the state a, of, a uh, tech, like, paint the picture? What's the state of technology? Is this, like, some kind of mainframe, Vax? Are you, like, moving tapes uh, around? Is it, like, network? Like, like cool. This is, like, the beginning of, like, this was, like, where I just started geeking out on all this stuff. So um actually became very quickly um, uh, the Unix admin for this research and development lab that I was working with. So we were actually prototyping a lot of the leading edge technology and trying to prove it out uh, for our bids on contracts to NASA or DOD or DMA or Defense Mapping Agency, all these you know great government agencies. And um, so we were just rapidly prototyping through them. It was very much a spiral methodology to get these delivered. So these were really um, uh, systems like uh, Solaris, Silicon Graphics, HP, you know, all these Unix-based systems. And then we'd string them together with high-speed networks. At the time, FIDI was just being introduced, ATM, Hippie, um, you know, and then with mass storage arrays that were like, you know, the RAID systems and then like the, the um, tiered storage systems with storage tech kind of working your way from, you know, hard drives out magnetic all the way to tape um, and building out these these interoperable open systems at that point. The goal was to try to show that you could connect, you know, all these massive systems and then ultimately get it to the desktop of, of the scientists. And we would use Motif at the time to build the um, user interface, right, for these scientists. But the complexity was you had to build these interfaces and compile them 
for each of these different platforms. So while it was like, you know, hey, Unix is Unix, right? I mean, it was right. like, well, there was different flavors of Unix and there was like, well, this works on this, you know, platform and Silicon Graphics was different than Sun. So there wasn't really, you know, shocker, same problems as today, you know, the interoperability and and, and standards that were out there because it wasn't to the benefit but of I think people forget, I mean, you brought up like a point, like kind of like, I don't know if it's pre-browser, but about the browser, but at the time, right, it was all the desktop, all the X-windowing desktop all, systems were all different, right? And they all are, had different flavors. Super fascinating, right, is where it came out. And that's where it kind of clicked in the lab environment, like this idea and this promise of, how do you get a a um, a desktop environment that um, you know is is uh, a ubiquitous right that standard? So at that, at that point it was NCSA Mosaic, right? It was the National Center for Supercomputing Applications came out with the initial browser based on that HTTP uh, protocol, and we got early access to it, and we were like, oh shit, you know, we could just display this browser on, on, you know, the, the, as well, as long as you do the visualization within this browser, well, we just saved ourselves a really, you know, a huge amount of time mm -hmm. uh, to be able to distribute our, our, our software. Um, so it was super fascinating. And that's really where it started to connect the dots between getting the backend systems, um, you know, to be humming along and getting that data and then, you know, uh, uh, being able to do the analyzation and this <laughs> analyzation the, the, for imagery, it was like, things like ortho rectification and all sorts of stuff you had to do to imagery on the back end to make it presentable. Um, and then being able to do, you know, pr provide that to the scientists and the data analysts so they can make quick decisions on it. That was really where the focus became much more on the front end because it was like, okay, now we really have to figure out how to display this data using these, you know, common, common tools uh, within the browser. And at that point, it was like using a you know a butter knife, uh, <laughs> you know, to try to, to have surgery, right? I mean, I remember using um, one by one pixel uh, transparent uh, uh, images to try to uh, define table borders within you know a uh, 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 HTML <laughs> and just stretching it out from one pixel to ten pixels to basically kind of get everything. You know, <laughs> like the difference between like using spaces or tabs by then it was back then it was like well are you using a transparent uh you know gift to be able to actually yes. present um but it was it was super fascinating um learned a, a ton got really into data visualization uh became uh, pretty inspired by uh this gentleman dr tufty went to some of his classes at georgetown he does a lot of work on data visualization. Right, he's written the the like the definitive books, right? Everyone, yeah. I always see those books laying around. Yeah, it was really kind of click, and it was like, oh, you know, it's like, yeah, you have all this data, but how do you actually present it in a way uh, that you can make some some business decisions? Or you know, he used an example like you know the the Challenger explosion, and like, hey, all the data was there, it just wasn't presented in a way that somebody could effectively make that decision, and. Um, you know, I was at the time, I really loved graphic art. So the kind of combination of uh, collecting that data, presenting it, and then navigating it through it, maybe I had some love for HyperCard from Apple. And there was like this whole idea of, you know, the contextual experience of, of navigating. So yeah, really, really um, learned just a massive amounts of, of that. And um, yeah, I cut my teeth on all that stuff. And, you know, it was, it was uh, my first lesson, uh, my first failure, I think, was, um, you know, I mentioned I went to the business school, right? And then I had mm -hmm. information systems. And here I am every day I'm getting a box of like this just high end, amazing stuff from, you know, Sun and Silicon Graphics and four systems for networking. Did I buy any stock? No, no. I was so, you know, 
I was so focused on That's right. you know, the technology geeking out. It was like, I'm like, you know, I look back, I'm like, oh, I was in freaking business school. I, you know, I didn't connect the dots. Because, you know. um, Don't worry. Listen, so- you're not alone. There's a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of us missed out on being millionaires, billionaires. And uh, don't, don't, don't worry. You're in, you're in good company. I would say highly educated company that uh, also missed out. Sure, All right. So you're at Hughes Aircraft. You're you're out there saving the world. So of course your your next move looks like <laughs> it's into into banking at Capital One. And uh, yeah. and before, and as we get into it, I just think one. I just think it's amazing. It looks like you spent. I mean, nearly twenty years with a variety of roles. I mean, that to me is a miracle in itself that you were at one place for that long. I, is there any before we kind of? I want to hear the story of that, but like. What is the key to staying? I, I have never been somewhere that I either didn't want to leave or they didn't want me to leave for after just not even, not even, not even close to 20 years. It's probably just after a few years. So what is, what's the key to a long, I'll call it a long tenure at one company? How did you do it? I mean, you know, I, I like to say I'm like, I'm hardcore, I'm savage, you know what I mean? I'm relentless, <laughs> you know, but um, the, the, the truth is um, it was really like 10 different companies. Um you know uh, what most people don't realize about Capital One is it's still founder led uh, with with Rich Fairbanks right as as the CEO um, and the evolution of of Capital One from where I started to where it is now as a bank I mean it was basically you know back then it, it was subprime you know credit uh, that spun off from Signet Bank and it was going after you know it was using all this data they invented balance transfer mm-hmm. um, and, and basically used the data to determine. Um, different rates that you can give people based upon the risk and response. Right back back then, mm-hmm. it used to be everybody had a flat. It was like, here's your credit card. Everybody gets sixteen, you know, eight percent. Period. Right. Right. So they kind of disrupted that using this data, um, these, these this data analytics. So was really Capital One on founded in Richmond? Is that where the headquarters is, or has that uh, just become like the headquarters? Or at least no, to me, it was, it's the headquarters. So Signet Bank, um, I believe Signet was, yeah, Richmond. Um, and then that's where it sort of spun off uh, uh-huh. from it. And, and it was uh, right on Broad Street in, in, in Richmond was the main headquarters. They had the called the card building and the ops building. Uh, <laughs> there were the two buildings right next to each other there. Um, but the the formal headquarters ended up being in McLean. I don't okay. know if they did that for like regulatory reasons, probably like community reinvestment acts, or I don't know. I don't know mm-hmm. what the reason was for that. Um, but they had a little bit more of, I know Rich is from that area. He's got, you know, uh, I think a, a, a hockey rink in his basement there and loves the, you know, the capitals, <laughs> which is now why they got the, the, the capital one, uh, is, is naming the, the rink. Um, but most, for most part, uh, you know, the whole center of gravity was, was in Richmond for, um, for, for, for Capital One. Fast forward now, I think that they have one of the largest buildings between Charlotte and Philly that they built in, in McLean. They're really amazing headquarters. That's like a Wegmans in the you know first floor and that kind of stuff, really? right? Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's like Well, I've only been, apartment. the campus in Richmond, I think is fantastic, at least when oh, I was the West there. Campus, I mean, it's yeah. just like, I was like, wow, this is just like an oasis. I, was, I don't know, when I drove into it, I don't know what I was expecting, but I was like, wow, cap one is doing, this is what I thought. I was like, wow, cap one is doing really well. That was my my impression. They do invest. um, I mean, that was one of the reasons too. They they do invest a lot in their people. I mean, I have a lot of respect for, for how capital one rolls. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, obviously with any enterprise, there's a lot of opportunities, um, you know, Well, take us back. How did you get, so you're at Hughes. How did you decide to make the jump to capital one? Someone call you up? Like how'd you get into it? Yeah. It's kind of a couple of things that was going on. I mean, I was at Hughes for, for five years. 
at that point. So, you know, you got, you know, you're vested in your 401k, you're kind of like, okay, what, you know, you're kind of looking around and saying, well, where, where is my career going here? Um, and at that time, there was a lot of consolidation going on in the defense industry, and and uh, Raytheon was being rumored to you know purchase uh, a Hughes aircraft, and you're always kind of like, okay, well, what is that? You know, there's what's kind of going on. We had family in, in Richmond. We were you know starting a family as well, so um, you know, I was just looking to get back there. And uh, you know, I had a, a tech recruiter, and they mentioned like this startup that was you know very focused on tech, and were very interested in my my Unix skills. Um, and uh, and brought me up for for an interview and um, yeah so it just sort of one thing led to another and um, started there and uh, it was interesting talking about like you know talking about the nice campuses now back then my first job um, it was in an old Costco it was like literally a, a flat <laughs> warehouse you know one story warehouse really big um, like in the you know kind of closer to inner you know Richmond um, nothing fancy about it at all it was just a massive call center and the technology team was actually kind of in the middle um, uh, of the whole um, uh, uh, call center. Um, and, and we actually worked behind, there was like this glass, like plexiglass that we worked behind. It was really what such an odd setup. Where it got really fascinating is when the systems went down, uh, people would, would, we call it prairie dogging. They, they would pop up from their cube and you would just see all of around and we see all these agents like popping up real quick. Looking at you. Like, oh, oh crap. The system is like something's going on because they weren't getting yeah. uh, um, the the data. So uh, um, yeah, so I, I got a job um, in the So wait, was that set up intentional? It seems like a, like an intentional high pressure setup. It's like, well, we don't really need to invest in any monitoring because literally the people are going to start looking at you exactly. and, you know, and you're going to have to take action. I think you're onto something there is probably, uh, um, you know, if you think about like the feedback loop from like the, now that you build it, you own it kind of thing, like the big (laughs) conversation going on in DevOps and and cloud and and like, you know, Hey, own the pager, you know, there's nothing more, uh, uh, there's nothing quicker feedback than, um, agents that aren't meeting their quota, um, looking at you, uh, with these death stares, um, like why, why aren't I getting my, my feeds to my screen so I can go ahead and, and get some, you know, uh, delinquent accounts, um, and, and make my quota, right. That's a really instant feedback loop. And there's probably something to be said, <laughs> to be said about that. It certainly was pretty motivating, um, to, to fix the, the, the scripts or whatever it was that was broken at the time. But well, that's um, funny. Well, that's going to be the future. The future is we're all going to, after post pandemic, we're all going to just work in giant auditoriums, looking at each other again. We'll all probably be ready for it, the interaction right. level, you know, it'll all switch back. Well, it, well, if you think about it, yeah, and, and you're surrounded by the business, like imagine you're a big auditorium yeah. and you're just surrounded by all the business folks that are generating the revenue for your organization and you're sitting there and they're just looking at you like, you better just keep that dial tone going. Cause keep if not, going. like, yeah. Yeah. I know where to find, I know where to find you. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, so that was the, um, you know, so was that your really, first job basically man- managing that when you first got there? Were you like kind of doing sysadmin well, or was, building stuff? Yeah, like, my first job was like sysadmin and then just kind of work my way through like project management. Uh, then you just start working, you start working your way through the system, you know, mm-hmm. and start taking on like larger opportunities. And because, um, uh, you know, one thing connects to the other, you know, you have the, the dialer system that's connected to the front end system that's connected to the, you know, back end systems and then the data. Mm-hmm. Um, then you start understanding the flow. And, and, and so, yeah, you just sort of start evolving your way through it. And back then it was, um, you know, it was pretty, the, the, um, the systems and the approach was definitely not as advanced as in a research lab for, you know, DOD, right? 
Um, and either was sort of like, you know, it's still very waterfall-esque, you know, in terms mm -hmm. of, um, you know, project manager with the Microsoft project chart, you know, kind of stuff. And you yeah, go from charts. your development yeah. to, mm -hmm. yeah, you go from your developer to, you know, your, 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 your QA. Well, you had your analyst up front meeting with the business and then they come back with the requirements, right. yada, yada. But I think the, it, the MRD, the PRD, the long document gets read, gets signed off. Well, now what about, you know, for everyone that's maybe not worked it, because I think banks, as we all know, spend a lot of money on technology, right? But they're usually one of the most regulated industries, a lot of security yeah. concerns. So I guess, you know, for someone that hasn't worked in that kind of environment, for people that are maybe working in like, I don't know, call it social media or things where they kind of flow a lot faster. Like what's, what's it like to be in kind of that regulated environment? Is it like auditors everywhere? Is it, you know, a constant barrage of audits and uh, security violations? Is it more dynamic than we make it sound? Like, how would you describe it? Yeah, I mean, look, things have changed a lot since, you know, over time with the regulatory and, and, and compliance. And, and it certainly changed with administrations, to be honest with you. I mean, different administrations are going to, you know, raise the bar from, uh, um, from regulations or, or lower the bar to allow more competition and stuff like that. I think that that's the complexity with it, right, is that um, – you know, everybody at uh, you know a company like Capital One has to go through a just a ton of of, of computer based training to understand all the different regulations, and it's a kind of a part of you know, like they say now, security is you know everybody's job and operations is you know all the jobs you know developers all need to learn how to operate you know uh, you know all that kind of stuff. Everybody needed to understand. Um, just the general sort of compliance rules that exist out there because so it's like it really stuff kind of, like know your customer and like money laundering is it, is it that yeah, kind of like training and that stuff patriot act all that all the different that all that kind of stuff yeah um just um you know what are the different policies from from uh, personal you know what what is personal data you know what is not personal data what can you you know share what can you not share um because it impacts you know everything from well how you present on the front end what you can store on the back end you know, how do people opt in? How do people opt out? All of that kind of stuff. So everybody kind of, there was like a, um, a dial tone within the organization that everybody had to take that, uh, th those types of courses and have some general fluency in that, right? Um, you know, you had compliance officers that were there to help you out. Some were, you know, helpful, some were more punitive, you know, right? And it depends upon how, how I approached it. But I mean, in the, the, you know, that ensuring that the systems were compliant um, and that the fact that they changed, you know, how, how the regulations work, that was certainly some complexity of it. I wouldn't wish that on many, but the interesting part is, you know, it did create a barrier of entry, you know, unlike the uh, retail industry or, you know, the transportation industry or others that were so easily disrupted, right? Uh, well, why? Well, they don't have much barrier, you know, in terms of, of going out. I mean, I go in my freaking garage, build a, you know, Uber app, and all of a sudden, the next thing you know, the taxi industry is, you know, kaput, right? Um, you know, there's a lot of different things that, that I can do. Uh, social media is a great example of, of that. Like, what, what, what were you sort of what barrier did you have? I mean, now we wish we had barriers, right? Right. Um, to some of that stuff. But, you know, with financial, um, you know, it's very, very difficult to do that. You're seeing some of that with like apps like Robinhood and others that are kind of coming out, mm -hmm. but really the full suite financial uh, organ, you know, with, with, you know, everything from the credit card to your banking, to your checking, to, you know, the loans or whatever, it's very, very difficult. Um, given the underlying complexity, my, um, my hypothesis is um, 
at some point, if somebody can crack banking as a service, like almost like take Capital One um, systems that they've built, right? Um, and equate that to AWS and then take Capital One.com and equate that, equate that to Amazon.com, right? And if right. you can, if Capital One.com, the, the front end could kind of say, hey, let's spin off the underlying systems, the, you know, the real, the, the Capital One systems. And now you make banking as a service and make that available today. We'll, we'll take care of everything below the line in terms of regulatory compliance, you know, all of the back end stuff, you know, working with the government, yada, yada. You could just build your little micro banks on top of us. It becomes a pretty fascinating model at some point right. to be able to. Well, what's your yep. take on um, the closest thing? It's not banking, but it's payments. Like Stripe seems to have kind yeah. of cracked the code on how to do credit card payments. I think no, everyone just uses Stripe now. Now the thought is like, well, we just use that. And they figured it all out for us. And we don't, we don't have to worry about the credit card system. They would just use what they do. Yeah, I do think that there's much more. Um, I, I think, you know, to, to the point is that uh, I think more and more people are starting to figure out how to disrupt this regulatory, this regulated industry. But as you can tell, it's taken a long time. Oh, yeah. Some of the, the early pickings that are out there. I mean, you know, um, another example is, you know, um, the healthcare industry obviously is highly regulated, very difficult to sort of be disrupted in, right? So while there's a downside about the complexity of being highly regulated, mm -hmm. the upside is there's a little bit of, you know, uh, industry security, uh, less and yeah. less these days because people are, you know, getting smarter and smarter about it. Um, the, the plus side for me, I think, was the discipline to kind of work through, um, you know, Stephen Case, I think, uh, put it really well in his book, um, The Third Wave, where you kind of had the, I think he calls it like the three Ps of partnership and policies and persistence like you have to be disciplined in how you work through um bringing things to market and it requires just not going in a garage and going out on your own and being all maverick about it right you have to learn how to partner with others um and you have to learn how to work through policies not like you know, just throw them out the door and be like, hey, they don't exist, but you have to understand and use them to your advantage in some cases and right and use that actually as a moat. Um, and then if something doesn't work, you just don't like throw it away. You have to be, you know, there's some persistence around, well, you know, okay, well, this is more of the pivot. You know, how do you, how do you pivot? Right. You've got to embrace, I think so many embrace the, uh, the regulation. It's like those who that seek to understand or be the ones that succeed, right? It's, yeah. It seems like the people that, uh, well, listen, at Cap One, so you were there for a long period, but I've seen, you know, at many conferences, you know, a lot of people from Capital One presenting on Agile, presented on DevOps, and sort of, you know, and it feels like from the outside that something clearly went on there, that at Cap One, they embraced this and they've really tried to implement it, at least as an outsider's view. So, like, what happened inside the company that kind of spurred that on? That's not something, well, I don't know, you tell me, is that something that happened organically or was it something that you know, Capone decided to leverage for some type of strategic advantage. Um, no, I think it was very purposeful uh, and very, very astute in terms of the, how the leadership roles there. I mean, I think it really starts from the top. Um, Rich understood from early on, you know, technology is a strategic advantage, right? Um, and what's one of the lessons, the biggest lesson I got, even from the dialer days, right? When I'm when I have the business folks staring at me, like <laughs> IT doesn't matter, right? right? I mean, the goal of IT is a means to an end, and that end is usually generating revenue, right? I mean, that's kind of the goal. 
Um, and you're just friction, right? So, you know, if you're not sort of enabling it, enabling the calls and making them faster and more, then you're, you're a problem, right? Uh, and you're overhead. Um, and I think too many folks in, in technology get too wrapped up on their science projects, their, you know, whatever their delivery platform that they're focused on and they're building. And, you know, whether it's, you know, Kubernetes or Jenkins or Ansible or what, I mean, who gives a shit? You know, at the end of the day, the value is um, what you're delivering, you know, from a customer, you know, value and revenue generation. Now, realistically, technology can help accelerate that revenue in many, many ways, especially, you know, we'll kind of get to the cloud uh, computing as a huge opportunity with it. Um, and I think there was kind of two pieces to, to that uh, that still hold true today at Capital One. Um, and a lot of companies are trying to replicate it. There's an internal aspect um, and, and, and then there's an external. Um, one is there is a very there was a very focused a culture of engineering, right? That we value technology. We're going to invest in technology. Um, we're going to leverage it. We're going to make sure that our business understands technology. Um, and, you know, it is a part of how we deliver things and it, we're going to get there a lot faster. Right. And without being necessarily overly prescriptive, but the fact that we, you know, we are going to index and even having like, um, you know, fellowship programs, we have individual contributors right early on recognizing the value of of technologists, and even pure technologists. So that was something that was really important um, internally. I think going along that. There was definitely embracing, you know, the, the the culture of DevOps. I mean, everybody had a copy of Phoenix, you know, project on their desk. Uh, Gene Kim and Jess Hummel were, you know, at Capital One events, and we were very focused on, you know, we were either living the Phoenix project, you know, early chapters, and right. we wanted to kind of saw, you know, saw the light. We understood a lot about lean. Um, uh, you know, lean manufacturing, the Toyota way and eliminating waste and process management and Six Sigma is also a big part of our, our business culture as well. So really the convergence of, of that with, I mean, DevOps made sense. You're shifting, you know, ops to dev, but realistically, you're also shifting dev to your business folks. And that's the whole point is how do you get closer to the business? And that was always a, a focus. So you have that made sense. Agile was just really more of a, a manifestation of, of lean, right? It's like, how do you eliminate waste? Um, I mean, obviously you could fake, fake agile. Um, <laughs> right. And a lot of people did. I always say that it's like, um, you know, it just allowed us to say no to the business a lot faster. Like now we say no every two weeks, you know, and it, and it, <laughs> it forced them to ask for things in smaller chunks where we could eventually say yes, but the things that we were delivering were so small, they eventually just didn't matter. It was just we, everybody felt good because we were delivering small things every two weeks, right? Because right. um, you still had the barriers, even the early days with Agile and DevOps, um, with things like release engineering. You know, where I was, I was head of release engineering uh, prior to cloud, and I kind of looked at myself in the mirror. I was like, oh, I am the problem. You know, yeah. I am creating a bunch of controls that's stopping you know, our development team from going into operations, but at the same time, operations was incentivized for what stability and reliability yep. Yep. and devs are incentivized for what putting as much into production as they can to, you know, kind of get, so you just realize, Hey, there's got to be a better way, but, um, yeah, huge, huge, um, proponents of, of, of that from early on, it was a cultural thing internally. And a good example of that is like, there's this tool called Hygia that was a DevOps tool that we used internally to kind of measure, um, uh, uh, teams and velocity, and we ended up open sourcing it um, as well. 
So like why open source, right? So one, you're, 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 you know, this, this, this idea of you're creating a signal to the industry that, Hey, you are really taking uh, uh, technology seriously. You're advanced, which does what it creates hiring opportunities. You become a magnet because people want to go where you're doing cool stuff. Yeah. Right. Absolutely, I mean, yeah. So, so now all of a sudden, you know, um, what, what, what better way to hire top engineers than, you know, somebody's at a competing company and they're being told to download, you know, the open source tool from Capital One. They're like, oh man, hold on a second. Yeah, like, well, I'm not going to download yeah. it. Mm-hmm. I can just go over there and actually work on it. Right. Yep. Um, so I think that there was a little bit of that internally, like how do you build up that muscle in terms of your engineering, uh, uh, uh expertise? Mm-hmm. A lot of that is, you know, uh, start to present internally. Uh, we had internal software engineering conferences, uh, create visibility to folks to be able to highlight what they're doing with blogs and then look for opportunities to, to um, share that externally. And well, then using like, those, op- you know. I was going to say, it looks like you um, you have one of the more unusual job titles I've ever seen. I don't Maybe you're the only one I've ever seen. It, it said that you became the Dean of Cloud Computing at uh, Capital <laughs> One. And I was like, okay. Because I mean, that, that to me is kind of like hits on a lot of stuff you're talking about. It's, it, you know, it just shows how serious that you were taking it, taking that. It sounds like, you know, cloud computing was almost like a discipline. Like, you know, it's, that's the way it sounds like there's like the school of cloud computing, right. And you're out there evangelizing it. So I don't know, like what, what did you actually do as the Dean of cloud computing? What does that actually mean? Yeah, it was interesting. I didn't start off that way. I, I actually was very fortunate uh, to, you know, Capital One's a little bit of a, a unicorn with enterprises in terms of their early adoption of, of cloud. Um, I was very fortunate to be a part of that and, and be a part of their cloud center of excellence and their cloud program team. And they really kind of, you know, it was a group of, you know, anywhere started off at 20, 50, 100 folks that sort of uh, aggregated across security, networking and the like to build this program office to deliver on this promise of cloud computing. Right. It was chartered by you know Rob Alexander, the CIO. And he's like, this is why we're doing it. This is where we're going. And now it was our job to figure out how the hell we're going to do it, right? And it was like, okay, are we there yet, right? Um, so I was a director of our cloud engineering and operations. So I had uh, the fun, uh, some of the fun jobs of trying to get the early adopters into the cloud, um, as well as own third level support for the folks that were struggling with the cloud. So I became highly incentivized to get people to start um, to move from WTF to AWS as quickly as possible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that was really, cause you know, you're getting a lot of questions from folks on some basic things. And at the end of the day, it's not their fault. Uh, they had a lot coming their way. This is all new to them. And um, you know, your initial reaction might be, oh, come on, you know why, you know, go figure it out. Like, you know, if this is, you know, this is just EC2. Like it's right. just, you know, I know, it. You just hit the start button. It's your, your your server is there. Just hit the start, right? It, you don't have to call environment team. Um, it didn't like nobody stole it from a data center, right? You know, some really really basic things like that. Um, but um, you know, some of the best cloud engineers are actually in operations. I mean, they get the underlying, you know, storage and data and and uh, networking. It's just providing them this trans uh, like a, a translator, right? A decoder, right. and. Um, well, at Cap One, how how did it work as far as like was like new projects in AWS, and then you know you maintained the old stuff, or was there like a lot of migration? Did you end up doing a lot of migration of existing systems? Like, how did you know f- yeah. people are always interested in that transformation? How did you guys approach it? Yeah, so just you know like the the um, so my goal, I, I ended up uh, as part of doing both the cloud engineering uh, operations, and then 
I became dean of cloud computing, which I eventually pivoted to, to full-time because that became a pretty important imperative to kind of drive talent transformation, right? Um, but the, the, the cloud migration, there's no real easy answer to it. It is complex. And I, I think a lot of folks don't really um, see the complexity when it comes to a cloud migration. They want to wave their magic wand and just like, oh, well, you're just going to take this app and move it over and we're going to re, you know, recode it. I mean, you know, you got 40 million customers banging on your system, right? You got compliance and audit and, you know, you have to train people and you have to, you know, and, and, and there's a lot of, of, of uh, spaghetti code that, na that navigates through these legacy systems, right? So it was really kind of like seven different paths to it that first started off was, hey, let's pick three apps and um, kind of have different characteristics from each. You know, one might be a microservice, one might be multi-tier, you know, one might have backhauling to a database that's on-prem to kind of look at latency, right? And we put those in different pods and kind of horse raced those teams and uh, built out a cloud readiness checklist to say, here's what we assume things need to look like to be cloud native, and then iterate it through that as everybody was full stack in, in the rooms and, and learning as you're going and curating and passing lessons from one team to the other team in kind of real time, right? So that doesn't obviously scale, but that's how you can quickly, um, you know, fail fast, but there was no real failing. It was like, we're going to do this. Um, <laughs> it's just a matter of what we learn. And uh, so as you get those initial three apps and you kind of prove it out and then everybody's like, you know, the, the floodgates open and everybody's like, well, I'm going to the cloud. I'm going to make a name for myself. I'm getting my whole portfolio over there. Right. And then reality kind of sets in um, and you go through this like trough of despair. It's like, oh, man, like this is really freaking hard. You know, uh, half of these services are, are, you know, MVP from, you know, your cloud provider or whatever. And it's mm -hmm. like that, you know, you got X, Y, and Z you're trying to unwind. So there's the easy thing was like, hey, all net new development is 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 native in the cloud, right? And and, and Capital One announced that its its primary cloud provider was going to be AWS. Um, so anything new was going to be built in in the cloud. Um, then you have kind of the other ones that are like, okay, which of these are going to move over? And then there's just refactoring that goes in. Um, which of them are going to be just retired? Like, hey, you know, which which of you can just kind of get get rid of? Um, then you had some complex ones. It's like as you want to start down, shut down data centers, you know, hey, do you just have to kind of image it almost, get it over to the cloud just so you can shut down the data center? And Capital One, I think it was like eight data centers in the U.S. And, and interestingly enough, this year, their final two data centers are going to be shuttered. So think about that. Like, I mean, the cost of a data center, like it's like the power plant, right? Mm -hmm. It's like uh, you know, they no longer exist. So that's like, you know, that anchor is no longer right, there. Right. Gone. And that was really a, yeah, it's just gone. I mean, just the physical aspect of those, those massive power plants, right. Um, just the, the, the physical nature of them and just the, the, the so that's actually an interesting, maybe we get a really interesting stat out of you. Like, when do you think, when do you think the, the migration at AWS started and let's say, okay, if they're out of all the data centers at the end of this year, is that like a, was that a five-year effort, a 10-year effort? I, I think like... realistically, I think, you know, uh, when we were first starting off, it was kind of like, uh, I remember Adrian Cockcroft, who was very fortunate uh, to, to, to meet and talk with and, and provide some guidance and mentorship. He actually uh, drove a lot of Netflix um, uh, efforts um, with their uh, migration to the cloud and then uh, ended up going to, to AWS. And he was, you know, kind of 
uh, did a lot of things like the Simeon Army with, uh, you know, chaos monkeys and things right. like that. Right. So a lot of my lessons from from how to operate in the cloud came came from him. But I mean, Netflix took six years. Right. Yep. And that was kind of a litmus test. It was like, man, you got like a really not one dimensional, but it's streaming service. Right. It's like that's not. I mean, it's complex, but don't get me wrong. It's not, you know, it's no, not, it's like not a system. bank. I also said it's not a financial institution with yeah, all the uh, regulation. It's a lot different. And their engineering team, they are freaking like, yeah, you know, that Netflix engineering team is just in, insane. And so you're kind of looking at that and you're saying, okay, you know, six to eight years seems reasonable, right? Mm-hmm. And that's about what it, what it might be. I mean, there's some shortcuts that you can take. Again, it all depends on what you're trying to get out of it i think there's the 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 um shutting down data centers is huge from a you know a capex versus opex that's awesome you know obviously uh value but i think more importantly the the main focus was delivering value to our customers right the ability to say hey i have this really cool idea um you know for our mobile app like i want to be walking down the mall and if i have you know if i pass a store that we're partnered with you know, it's a pop up, you know, 20% off to that store that we can feed in real time based upon geolocation, time of day, whatever right. kind of thing, you know, like to be able to then deliver on that value requires you to be operating in um, not only a cloud environment, but also um, a, an environment that empowers the developers to very quickly deliver that without a lot of the gatekeeping yeah. of of you know the data centers and well, I think and, you hit the, the biggest thing there, right? I think so many people get excited about exi- exiting the data center because it's a line item. The CFO is excited. You see the money go away, but the value, right, long term, is just what you said. It's all about enabling all these new things to happen faster, right? That's going to be that's I always tell people that's what really where you're going to see the payoff is you're going to be able to do new things faster and drive your business faster. Yeah. So don't get so when everyone's like I'm going to move everything to the cloud and get it's going to get cheaper. It's like well initially it may actually get more expensive. If so, you do it right, I would say I mean get, take the example of um of Amazon. Are they paying more or less for their cloud bill as they you know uh, like they're probably paying a shit ton more for you know for for their technology because they're getting just massive returns on it. Yep. Right. So like if you're doing it right, you'll probably end up spending more. But the whole point is that you're actually generating a lot way more money. Yeah. Value. I was like, I always give the example of um, my daughter built an Alexa skill for like Harry Potter, Alexa skill or whatever. And it went viral and it, it, she earned you know thousands of dollars in um, uh, developer incentive cash from, from Amazon. Right. And um, it, it's funny because, you know, she, built that app in, in like very, very simply, uh, simple, you know, I helped guide her through a template with Python script, but it was basically insert the questions and you could deploy this, this skill and Lambda function. Um, we did it in, in, uh, I think it was like from start to finish from, you know, uh, coding it to deploying it, to being available to five, 10 million customers was 24 hours. Right. Right. So, I mean, isn't that the goal of like, I have intent Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to get it to market and I'm trying to just eliminate as much friction as possible to either test that out or, you know, actually go to market with something. And here's somebody that really focused on the outcomes, right? right. Getting something, you know, to with minimal uh, in, in the way and um, use a Lambda function that, you know, it's it's cost zero dollars. She's right. made, I mean, it paid for her trip to, to, to London for the school trip, right? She made like five or six thousand dollars. Wow. Wow, uh, entrepreneur the yeah. in the house here. I like it. Well, but and then, like nobody asked her, like, oh, what, what, um, 
what kind of deployment type pipeline did you use? Um, what data center is it in? Or I mean, that's not the point because IT doesn't matter, right? Yeah. It's, it's all about the outcomes. It's completely of it. abstracted from her, right? She just can do what she wants to do. Mm-hmm. And the more we can do of that and enable our our business, you know, the customer experience and focus on that, I think that that's the promise of of cloud. To be honest right. with you, so let's. Uh, well, I think that leads us right into what you're doing now. So you obviously had a great career at Cap One. Seems like you saw a little bit of everything there, but then you decided. <laughs> Uh, it looks like you've left there and now you're at a cloud guru. So why don't you just, for everyone that doesn't know, what exactly is a cloud guru? Yeah. So at, at cloud guru, we're on a mission to teach the world to cloud. Um, we have on demand, uh, courses on, uh, building skills development for all the major cloud providers. So AWS, Azure, GCP, um, cloud adjacent technologies, you know, like Kubernetes, et cetera. Um, you know, Python, that, that type of stuff, things that are going to get you going in the cloud. Everything from getting started with certification. I always love certifications because it's a way to a little what's in it for me. They're valued in the industry, but it provides a good framework for, for learning. Uh, and then we have hands-on labs. We actually have live environments that you can spin up in uh, one of those multi-cloud environments and actually start experimenting. Um, hands-on labs, so we have outcome-based training, uh, just a ton of, of, of different training for uh, anywhere from beginner to advanced. Um, we acquired Linux Academy uh, the end of last year, so we're fully integrated with them as well. So all it did was just expand um, the breadth of our and depth of our courses. So now it includes other things like Red Hat and, and, and other things like that. So, so as someone who wants it, so I can either sign up and take the courses directly, right, and pay for them, or and it sounds like you also do deals with like other large companies who then make it available to their employees. Is that kind of the, the way it works? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, we have a, a individual um, membership as well. So you can sign up and basically when you, you purchase a, a membership to A Cloud Guru, um, it's all you can eat. You, everything that's on there, you get full access to and uh, for the entire year, as well as um, anything new that we add, right? So you're going to get, uh, you know, new courses are added all the time. We update our stuff. We have a whole bunch of uh, really great content. Um, it's, uh, one of the things that I that really compelled me to join a cloud guru was that I learned it at um, at Capital One that not all skills development is is equal. Um, it's it, when you could uh, engage people and make them laugh and smile and 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 it helps that with retention, right? And you can have a little bit of personality into that conversation. Um, and it was interesting because I was spending, you know, million to two million dollars on training, and I actually earned a patent trying to measure outcomes of our transformation and maturation. And I wasn't necessarily seeing the outcomes from doing the training. A lot of people just go into the class and, you know, check in the box and this too shall pass. You know, right. agile. I fake that. I could fake this. <laughs> um, right. But very few of them were getting their hands dirty and actually delivering results. And um, so I started pivoting to, you know, using the certifications as a mechanism. Um, and I found out a lot of people were going behind my back and using a cloud guru, uh, early days when they were B2C. And I was like, well, okay, why? Right. And, uh, it was fun. It was great. I had Ryan out actually to capital one. And then all these people started taking selfies with Ryan. I was like, what is going on? Like, why are you taking, you well, know, who, for uh, those that don't know who's Ryan. Uh, so Ryan, Ryan Kruneberg and Sam Kruneberg are the founders of A Cloud Guru. Really interesting story. Two brothers that um, basically Ryan went went to get a job with with AWS and try to get a certification, um, you know, and um, 
uh, found out that the training was really expensive. He didn't get the job with AWS, but he put all of his uh, notes, like video notes on uh, Udemy, I think at that point, and uh, just started blowing up on on uh, on all of his, uh, you know, people were just buying it left and right. So he ended up, his brother Sam worked at Microsoft all the time, took a sabbatical, built a platform on serverless uh, within like four weeks, and they went to market. And um, yeah, the rest is, is uh, kind of history. We had 2 million customers now and thousands of, uh, of business customers. We're a full enterprise grade uh, learning management system. So, All right. So maybe I you can said, give, give, uh, give the audience here because I get this question fairly frequently. I think for, uh, for someone new, maybe like a relatively new college graduate, they're, they're trying to figure out, all right, what certifications, what's going to make them the most valuable? What's going to get them the, uh, you know, potentially those good job offers. So how do you, uh, what's the insider tip here? Like, where would you guide someone? Should they be, you know, more general? Is there specific certifications everybody's after? Like, how do you guide people? Yeah, I think the most popular, look, the, the way you have the different cloud providers, right? So you obviously have AWS, Azure, and GCP out there. Um, you kind of look at the market share of those different cloud providers, and that might determine what you want to go after in terms of a certification. Um, you know, also, if you have a particular company that you're really focused on, well, just do some research. It's not that hard to find out, you know, are they using Azure, are they using AWS, whatever the case might be. Um, uh, uh, AWS is obviously very, very popular out there. Um, and they have a couple of different certifications that are really, really accessible. And that's our goal is to to make it accessible and to help guide people through, get the certifications, learn uh, enough on the way to where I always say you get your certification and you're an expert because now you know how much you don't know. Right. Right. Yep. And, and now you have the starting point to, to move. It's like your liberal arts degree. Um, you know, I have, I know enough to know that I don't know very much, but I have the context to be able to absorb uh, the, 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 the arts and sciences of, of, you know, cloud computing. Right. So the very first place to start with AWS is something they call their cloud practitioner. It's like the GED of cloud. Um, really great starting point, very accessible. Um, it's really great to demystify the vernacular of, 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 of cloud. Like if I walk into a room and say, hey, we're going to spin up a VPC with an IGW, with an EC2, an EBS, an RDS, um, an S3, like you should just know I just asked for a private data center with some you know, compute and storage in a database, right? Um, that's kind of a good starting point. Um, and then the, the the other point is like you're getting hands on as well as well. So you should log into the console using the labs, and you know build an S3 bucket, put a resume on on S3, like right. build build something, be a doer. You know mm -hmm. nobody wants anybody that's just like oh I know the theory. Like okay, well the whole point is like get your hands dirty, build something, build a Alexa skill or whatever it is. You know just right. do something with it, and and, and um, that's a great starting point. The the AWS solutions architect at the associate level and mm -hmm. I, I love the word associate because to me it's like the associate's degree the two-year associate's degree of cloud right. computing um that one tends to be the most valuable that's out there um it has a broad range of topics in theory it kind of covers you know the whole gamut of security database networking storage etc it's really hard to fake it um so passing it is is a good accomplishment um, I took it the first time and I had my master's and I failed it. I just didn't prepare for it. I didn't realize it was like, oh shit, this is actually, you know, I was director of cloud engineering. I was like, this should be easy. It was, it wasn't. Um, so, um, yeah. And, you know, so the, I think that that's a really, really good place to start. I think once you get to that point, 
really the focus becomes on uh, don't go too far into getting a bunch of certs. Like I think it's good to have different, you know, if you want to go into like, you know, get the developer cert or something like that as well to, to, to but use it as a way to guide your, your uh, acquisition of knowledge. Um, but really focus on building some stuff. Um, Forrest Braziel, who's a really awesome friend of mine, works uh, at A Cloud Guru now. He has this cloud resume challenge uh, where he kind of walk people through. If you could just you just search Google, you know, uh, A Cloud Guru cloud resume challenge. And he has a open source guy that walks people through like, hey, do these things. Here's how you build a, a build a resume on S3, but you know, use some uh, deployment uh, pipeline as well. And then now when you go into a, a interview, you can not just talk about it, but you can say, well, here's my, you know, drew.com and you could talk about, Hey, this is running and here's how I built it. And here's what I learned from it. And here's how I want to help your company out as well. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's a All right, really so we'll put that in the show notes. What is it? A cloud guru resume challenge. We'll make sure everyone yeah, the resume, we have a new challenge every month. That is really cool. This month's is, um, a, uh, a machine learning challenge by another AWS community hero, Keisha Williams, that works at, uh, at a cloud guru. So, um, yeah, some really good, uh, a cloud guru, um, it's on our, our blogs there, but we now have are a, the classes is, is everything is, are some live or is everything recorded? Like what's the kind of the Everything's format of on it? demand and recorded, um, and then updated all the time. Right. Okay. Um, and we do a lot of work with, um, you know, businesses, obviously, Hey, if anybody's mm-hmm. out there from a, a, a large business that is looking to accelerate your, your cloud transformation, you know, you got my contact information. Make sure to hook um, you up, right? Well, how does it well, work? Cause you know, I know like say, uh, I think we're what a month away. When is AWS reinvented? I guess it's a little different oh, yeah. this year. So are you, um, like are your, your content creators and trainers, are they just like on standby awaiting the, like the, 100%. the, the, I mean, uh, I the Andy Jassic, yeah. like his, uh, his just water hose of like 8,000 services that he um, is going to announce. But that is so, that is such the key point, right? Which is, Getting the certification and kind of establishing that baseline knowledge for the folks that have a certification, uh, you know, uh, whether it's a CCP or you know, Solutions Architect certification, their ability to consume that content by Andy and Werner and others is exponentially easier to be able to put that and hang that in a framework that, that they have now in front of them to be able to say, oh, okay – well, here's how ground station is related to Lambda, which is related to this or whatever the case might be. Right. Um, so I think that that's really where the key starting point is, but yeah, our, our instructors are in the studio 24 seven, you know? Um, so I was say, it must uh, be a stressful time right now. I don't know. Every time just consuming the keynote is stressful to me. I'm like, wow, there's a lot in there. So if I had to go create content for each one of them, I was like, Ooh, hey, it's a long nights ahead. Thing, uh, for, for, for us, we, we love it. Hey, please create more, you know, services, uh, because look, AWS does a really good job, and so does Azure and GCP of creating cloud services. Our superpower is is making them very accessible and easy to understand, right? That's what we love to do. And uh, and you know, again, we got a couple million customers and a ton of businesses that we're helping to drive uh, their their cloud adoption, and it's just getting cloud fluency. Um, and at companies, it's just doing it at scale. So all right, well, yeah. I think everyone, everyone out there, is probably there's always more to learn. So, uh, Drew. Drew, where can uh, people find you on the intranets out there and how can they contact you if they want to learn more about all of the stuff we've talked about? Yeah. So, uh, you can certainly hit me up on LinkedIn. Um, of course, you know, I got my, uh, my, my, my stock photo portrait photo out there, you know, all, all good as Drew Fearment, F-I-R-M-E-N-T. Um, same thing on Twitter. 
um, you know, at uh, Drew Fearment. Um, and then we got uh, just acloudguru.com. You can go directly to there. There's a ton of information out there. There's great resources. Our blogs are actually really good. They're credible, authentic, and have some really good information on, on some, some good stuff. So even just going there, getting a free trial, you got a seven-day free trial, reading some of the blogs, you're bound to learn uh, a little bit to, to, to help take that next step. All right. Well, fantastic. I think uh, that's it. There's no excuses. We should all we should all know everything about all these clouds now. Now we have uh, the right place to learn about it. So, uh, all right, Drew. Well, thanks a lot for being on the show. I really appreciate you coming on. Hey, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, if this is the first time you've ever heard Software Defined Talk, well, welcome. And you can probably subscribe right now in the podcast player you're listening to. But if you want to go to our website at www.softwaredefinedtalk.com. There you can uh, join our Slack. You can follow us on social media. And if you want, I will be happy to send you a Software Defined Talk sticker anywhere in the world. Here's all you got to do. It's going to send me your postal address to stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com, and I'll be happy to send you a sticker anywhere in the world. And with that, thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next time.